The scripture reading for this afternoon's sermon comes from Exodus 23. And we're reading this passage in connection with the focus for this afternoon's sermon, Joshua chapter 5, 13 through 15, where the commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua. The people of Israel have um, crossed the Jordan River and Joshua and uh, Jericho, sorry, is the first city that must be overthrown for God's people to be able to advance into um, the promised land and it's there just before the battle of Jericho that God appears to Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army appears to him. In connection with that, our reading is Exodus 23, beginning at verse 20 and reading through to the end of that chapter. This is the inspired Word of God. See, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion, since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God, and His blessing will be on your food and water, I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. With that in the background, let's turn to Joshua chapter 5. And our text is verse 13 through 15. Joshua 5, 13 through 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, 
take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we well know, today, October the 31st, is Reformation Day. That's the day on which, boys and girls, you probably know this too, Martin Luther, the great reformer, nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. That act sparked what we today reference as the Reformation. For hundreds of years, we know, the church had kept her members in spiritual darkness, But praise be to God, he powerfully used a man like Martin Luther and many others like him to bring light to so many who were indeed living in spiritual darkness. And we thank God, absolutely we thank God for all that he did through that man and again many others like him. But let's not kid ourselves this afternoon. Just because God used a man like Martin Luther and others to bring necessary and much needed reformation to the church does not mean that the devil then simply laid down his weapons and decided to give up. Let's not ever become complacent as if Satan and his schemes are no longer a threat to the church or to us individually as members of the church. That Satan never gives up was true for Israel in Joshua's day as well. That God's people are now in the promised land, they've just crossed the Jordan, remember, that God's people are now in the promised land does not mean that the devil is now going to leave them alone. They were across the Jordan, well, they got there, so I'll let them be for now. The devil never leaves God's people alone and we today should not be surprised at that because already in Genesis 3 verse 15, just after the fall into sin, God had said that there would always be an ongoing friction, an ongoing war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpents, the church and the world. Theologically, perhaps you know that, I expect you, many of you do, we call that the antithesis. And you and I need to be reminded that this battle isn't just a physical battle that we can always see with our eyes and hear with our ears. This battle extends beyond the physical realm into the spiritual realm. It's also a battle in which the spiritual world is engaged. Actually, to say that better, it's a spiritual battle which expresses itself in the physical world, our world. Maybe we don't think about that very much, but there very really are demons who, on the devil's behalf, are seeking to upend things for us as church and as faithful churches of our Lord Jesus Christ everywhere. There very really are demons who right now are doing everything that they can to turn both the joys and the challenges of your life into opportunities to make you stumble and fall into sin. And all of this is what we have to see as background to our text this afternoon. The battles that Joshua has to go and fight, 
now that they are ready to conquer the nations on the west side of the Jordan, are not just physical battles fought here on this earth. No, the conquest of Canaan has everything to do with Genesis 3 verse 15, the battle between the seed of the woman, God's people Israel, and the seed of the serpent, the nations there in the land of Israel. It's a battle that is at the same time being fought in the spiritual realm. More congregation, it has its origins there. That's where the battle is being fought too. That's that antithesis again. But praise God, brothers and sisters, there is one who together with his vast heavenly host, unseen to Joshua and God's covenant people back then, is fighting for them. And that one together with the innumerable, innumerable hosts of heaven, that one is always victorious. Before the fighting begins there in the promised land, Joshua needs to know that. And congregation, as we continue to live out our lives as church, but also as individuals within God's kingdom, you and I need to be reassured of that too. So our theme this afternoon, Joshua is graciously reminded that the battle is the Lord's. We're going to consider three things this afternoon. We'll consider that the commander of the Lord's army in the first place appears, then he identifies himself, our second point, and finally he prompts worship, our third thought. So first of all, the commander of the Lord's army appears. You can see it there in your Bibles. Our text begins with now when Joshua was near Jericho. The Israelites are camped at Gilgal. Joshua has walked the couple of miles towards the city of Jericho. What is he doing there? We don't know because we're not told and so ultimately it doesn't matter. This much we can say God wanted him there because it was there near that first city that had to be defeated that Joshua lifts up his eyes and he sees a man, we read there in our text, standing in front of him. And then goes on the text, standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. This is somewhat of a surprise meeting that's captured by the word now at the beginning of the text. Other translations would have behold. That expresses surprise. The surprise is only heightened by the fact that this man has a drawn sword in his hand. And that right there tells us something. Joshua 2, we can safely assume, knew right away that this was not a regular encounter with just another human being. That this is a special sort of encounter is clear when we compare Scripture with Scripture. Because, congregation, this exact phrase, drawn sword in his hand, occurs only two other times in the Old Testament. The first one is Numbers 22, verse 23. And that, you might remember, is the story of Balaam's donkey. Verse 23, let me read it for you. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the other time, the second time this exact phrase occurs is 1 Chronicles 21.16. The background there is that God is punishing David's sin of conducting a census of the nation. That verse says this, David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand, extending over Jerusalem. 
those two passages refer to the angel of the, refer to the individual with the drawn sword in his hand as the angel of the Lord. That's very important, remember that. Our text doesn't do that, but this heavenly being does, as we'll see in our second point, identify himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. That's verse 14 of our text. Add to that what we read in Exodus 23, there God promised, verse 20 of Exodus 23, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring to you to the place I have prepared. And that it is an angel that Joshua encounters in our text is confirmed by verse 23 of Exodus 23. That verse says this, My angel will go ahead of you. So God had promised that as his people went into the promised land, my angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the promised land, into that land. In other words, God had promised that his angel would be there to lead his people into that promised land. So what we have, brothers and sisters, is this. The appearance of this commander of the Lord's army tells Joshua this much right away. This is an other world encounter. This puts the whole conquest of the land in a completely different light. There's much more going on here than just crumbling city walls and flashing swords. There's much more going on than just one nation, Israel, taking over the land of other nations. Much more going on here than just a physical battle. This is in the first place a spiritual, you could say, Genesis 3 verse 15 battle. It's not just Joshua and God's covenant people who are engaged in this battle. No, this is in the first place a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's a battle of the spiritual realm being played out in the physical realm. In short, congregation, this is one battle. Ultimately, it's this. The devil and his dominion are working hard to overthrow God's plans for his covenant people. Undo the work of God and his vast host of heaven. And we can see this clearly in our scripture reading because, because look, why was it so important for God's people to totally destroy the nation's as they entered into the promised land. Well, the last verse of our scripture reading from Exodus 23 says this, Do not let them, that's those nations that are there living there now, do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. So we need to understand what God is saying there. It's this, Here's what's going to happen, he's saying to his people Israel, here's what's going to happen if you don't persist in the physical battle and destroy all those nations. What's going to happen if you don't do that is this, you'll end up losing the spiritual battle. You'll end up, verse 33, serving their gods, they will be a snare to you. See, then the seed of the serpent will have won the battle against the seed of the woman. And we know, congregation, it was exactly the same at the time of the Reformation. It was much more than just Martin Luther and other reformers trying to win a theological argument about perhaps some obscure points of doctrine, not that at all. It was much more than just uh, the political and church intrigue that was initiated by the Reformation. 
It was much more than the societal unrest that was caused by as the Reformation swept across Europe. All of that was real and could be seen with the eyes and heard with the ears. But we need to know that all that was seen and heard and being played out in the physical realm was but part of a spiritual battle that continues to rage. The seed of the serpent, the devil, the rest of the fallen angels, they're doing everything that they can to stop the work of the Reformation. They wanted, they wanted desperately to keep the masses in the darkness of Roman Catholicism. They did not want the Reformation happening. They didn't want the light of the gospel to shine into the darkness of the world. And let's today not make the mistake of thinking in terms of, well, that was way back then. But the devil isn't too active today, is he, here in our church and our lives, is he? Congregation, the devil hates every faithful church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The the devil hates every faithful believer too. So, congregation, at this point, we, we need to sort of pause for a second and just ask ourselves one question. Let me ask it of you. Will you believe it when the Bible tells us that there is a spiritual battle going on in the churches, in our lives, in society? To make it somewhat personal, will you believe it's true that when you are confronted with some temptation, you're not only contending with your own weak flesh, but also with a devil and his demons who do want to see you fall? who are actually working actively to make you fall? Or will you believe it's true that the devil is actively seeking to cause division and trouble in our churches, trying to derail God's people with the goal of making us unfaithful? Or can you accept that the devil is making the best of this whole situation we're currently living through to stop the church meeting, to break up the communion of saints, have his people drift apart. In short, will you believe, brothers and sisters, that the spiritual battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is as real today as it ever was? We come to our second point. So Joshua approaches the man, end of verse 13, and he asks at the end of verse 13, are you for us or for our enemies? Literally, the question translates as, are you one of ours or one of our opponents? See, Joshua, congregation, he needs some further clarification as to who this man is. There's that drawn sword that speaks to battle readiness. The sword was not in the sheath, it was drawn. And then as we see, Joshua knows that this man isn't just a regular soldier out for an evening stroll. And so he seeks clarification, who really are you? Are you on our side in this upcoming battle or their side? But then, congregation, comes the answer, verse 14, neither is he neutral then? Where exactly does this, this person stand? See, at the front of Joshua's mind is the earthly battle that needs to be fought. The city of Jericho is just there and it needs to be conquered. 
And he's looking at this man with a drawn sword in his hand from that perspective. But the answer neither confirms for Joshua that this man isn't a regular soldier. That means that he's not a soldier in Israel's regular earthly army either. He's not here to fight the physical battles alongside Joshua and the soldiers of Israel. And more, when you think about it, you realize that the answer neither, beginning of verse 14, doesn't even answer the question as to which side this man is on. The answer neither forces Joshua to think beyond this earthly realm and about the true identity of this man. You see, congregation, when he understands this man's true identity, then he'll have his question as to which side he is on answered in a most beautiful, reassuring and encouraging way. Says the man with the drawn sword, neither but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. For Joshua, that leaves no doubt that this being is a heavenly being. He's not human, even though he's appearing in the form of a man. And on the basis of Exodus 23, Joshua knows too that there is divine identity here, because if, as we've said, this command of the Lord's army is the angel of Exodus 23, who is to guide God's people into the promised land, then we know from Exodus 23 that this commander of the Lord's army is a divine being. How do we know that? Well, Exodus 23 once more. Verse 21. There Israel is instructed in verse 21, pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion. Congregation, who does one obey? Who pardons rebellion? And the same verse also says, verse 21, since my name is in him. God's name is in this angel, this man with a drawn sword, this commander of the Lord's army. So congregation, we're getting closer to an answer. Who is this man then? And before giving a definite answer to this question, let's look at the last verse of our text, verse 15. Because there Joshua is told, verse 15 of our text, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Those of us who are familiar with the Bible will recognize that as paralleling exactly what God told Joshua at the burning bush, Exodus 3. And in that instance, we know that it was God himself who was speaking to Moses. So do you see, congregation, how this is all coming together? Joshua and we along with him can come to no other conclusion than that this commander of the Lord's army is indeed God himself. More specifically, taking into account our scripture reading from Exodus 23, as well as the other passages we referenced, Numbers 22, 1 Chronicles 21, this man who is standing before Joshua is the second person of the Trinity. God the Son, who would later come to this earth and be born as a man. So, that makes this encounter a truly incredible encounter. Says the pre-incarnate Christ to Joshua, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. 
that for Joshua makes all the difference. Here with him, just before the conquest is about to begin, is the commander of the army of the Lord. That army is not an earthly army. Joshua has to lead one of those, an earthly army, Israel's soldiers, but there's another army headed by another commander, the commander of the Lord. It's the army of heaven which fights the battles on behalf of Joshua's army here on this earth, as was promised already in our scripture reading from Exodus 23. And brothers and sisters, what an army. Oh, to have that army on your side. Because that changes everything, doesn't it? And don't, brothers and sisters, for, for a moment even doubt the existence of this heavenly host just because you can't see them. I ask that you pick up your Bibles for a moment and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. I want to show you something in 2 Kings chapter 6. I want to show from this passage how this army of the Lord is very, very real. 2 Kings chapter 6. The background here, the king of Syria, enemy of God's time, of God's people in the time of the kings. He wants to capture God's prophet, Elisha. And the king of Syria is told that Elisha is holed up in the town of Dothan. And so he, this is verse 14 of 2 Kings 6, he sends there horses and chariots and a strong force, verse 14. And then the next morning, Elisha, so there's a, the Syrian army is, is, is around that city. Elisha's servant gets up and he sees that huge Syrian army surrounding that whole city. And he says, verse 15, look at verse 15. He says, at the end of the verse, he says, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? He sees his army and he sort of throws up his hands in despair and he says to Elijah, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do? Verse 16, Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then we read this in verse 17, look at it with me. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And we wonder, see what? Well, let's read on. Then the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wow! In that moment, the young servant of Elisha was given the privilege of seeing the hosts of heaven at work, busy ensuring victory for Elisha and God's people. See, in that moment... Elisha's servant was given the privilege of a brief glimpse into the spiritual realm. And so Joshua, back to our text, is to know there is, there really is a vast host of heaven commanded by the angel of the Lord, no less. And this army of heaven headed by this commander who is speaking to Joshua, is going to ensure, absolutely ensure, the victory of God's people, the victory of the seed of the woman over against the seed of the serpents. See then how big it is that this commander of the Lord's army adds in verse 14 of our text. He says, I have now come, verse 14. That means the world to Joshua. 
as he's standing there overlooking the first object of destruction, the city of Jericho, that means the world to Joshua, standing there with both feet, yes, firmly there in the promised land, but yet having the conquest ahead of him and his people. Yes, he is the commander of Israel's army. True enough, that's Joshua. But here now is the commander of the army of the Lord, the Lord's army. It means this to Joshua, I am not facing this task. We as earthly soldiers of God are not facing this conquest in our own strength. No, the commander of the Lord's army, he's here and his army is going to fight to ensure the victory. This battle isn't Joshua's, this battle belongs to the Lord. As the well-known hymn says, in heavenly armor will enter the land, the battle belongs to the Lord. No weapon that's fashioned against us shall stand, the battle belongs to the Lord. So listen, brothers and sisters. We first must acknowledge and understand that in our life too, personally, in our churches, in our living within the context of our culture, there's much more going on than the battle we just see with our eyes and hear with our ears. To make it real, we can debate at length what's all going on in our world right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We can write our emails and letters to our MPPs and government officials. Or as churches, we can have some discussion about some theological points or in our individual lives we can perhaps be wrestling with some sin maybe an, addi an addiction that's all very real it's all very tangible it's stuff that we see and hear write about and the struggles were very real at the time of the reformation too but know this in it all the devil making use of his demons is looking for another victim and if he can he'd love another church full of victims really congregation it is a spiritual battle and that's why peter writes the way that he does in 1 peter 5 verse 8 let me read it for you be so be self-controlled and alert your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour and Ephesians chapter 6 confirms there's a real battle going on for your soul, for my soul. There's a real fight going on for the faithfulness of the Christian church today. A real fight going on for the freedom to continue to, to worship, to live out the gospel that we embrace. A real fight that involves us but also includes that spiritual realm. On the one hand, the fallen angels, the demons. On the other hand, God's vast host of heaven. And yes, that should put us on guard. We do need to be watchful. We do need to be sober if we're going to be able to engage effectively in this battle. We do need to be on guard. We do, congregation, need to know what's going on in our world. It's not good enough for us to, as church, to sort of throw up our hands and say, well, whatever, they'll work it out. Apathy is really not an option for a Christian. There's far too much at stake. 
But then listen to this too, congregation. We live, don't we, 2021, after the time of Joshua. Yes, after the time of the New Testament Joshua. You know who that is, Jesus Christ. And what did the New Testament Joshua, Jesus, do? He brought, you might say, the spiritual battle to this earth. He, the commander of the army of the Lord, the one who appears to Joshua there on the plains of Jericho, he fought, Jesus fought the most epic of battles and blazed the path to victory by doing something entirely counterintuitive to the human mind. Something that at face value makes absolutely no sense at all. Because congregation, think about it. As he hung there on the cross of Golgotha, it sure looked like he had lost the battle. He was dead after all, no question of it. The soldier, one of the ones from the seed of the serpent, thrust his sword into Jesus' side and that made it absolutely certain there is no life anymore in that corpse hanging on the cross. It sure looked like the defeat of the commander of the Lord's army. And if the commander is defeated, isn't the army done too? But no, congregation, no. Praise God, no. Revelation 12, 11, And they have conquered him, that's the devil, by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' death as payment for sin means absolute victory. And it's confirmed gloriously because didn't Jesus rise from the dead? He did not remain in the grave. Peter writes it this way, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And there we have it. In Christ, the true seed of the woman, Christ, the true seed of the woman, the head of Satan is crushed, absolutely crushed. It's him, the devil, who loses. The victory belongs to the seed of the woman, the church. The victory belongs to you and me in Christ. The battle truly belongs to the Lord and he has won it. See, it's that that Joshua has to know. This is so much more, Joshua, than just you and your army fighting an earthly battle over some land. No, this is about God, the King of the universe, establishing His kingdom. This is ultimately the spiritual battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, that battle is going on today too. Here in our lives, in our churches, in our towns, in our province, in our country, on our continent, in our world too. But what joy and what confidence to go and keep up the fight because the victory has already been won. The grave is still empty. But given all that, what does it mean then for Joshua to go and fight? If the battle belongs to the Lord, and it does, then what's there for us to do? That's the question, isn't it? What does it mean for us, congregation, to fight in this epic battle? To answer that, we go briefly to our third point. Halfway verse 14 of our text it says this, Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, 
asked him what? What message does my Lord have for his servant? Joshua, at this point, congregation, he has no doubt anymore. He knows who he is speaking to. He knows that he is addressing God himself. He knows that he has to submit to this much, much higher authority. And so Joshua asks a very understandable question. He asks, what message does my Lord have for his servants? Joshua wants to know, what do I have to do, Lord? What orders do you have for me? And don't you, brothers and sisters, have the same question for the commander of the Lord's army? Lord, in this battle that's raging in my life, in our world, in the churches of our Lord Jesus Christ, and yes, Lord, I understand now how high the stakes are, that this battle goes way beyond me, that this is ultimately a battle for the souls of your people. And so we want to ask the commander of the Lord's army too, what do you say to me? What strategy do you have in mind for me? Just try and make this personal quickly. If you're fighting a real battle in your personal life, perhaps against some sin, wouldn't you love it if the commander of the Lord's army appeared in front of you and you could ask him, what would you have me do? How would you have me fight this battle? What strategy do you have in mind for me? Do you know, congregation, what the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua in response to his question? Take a look at verse 15. The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. That, we remember, is what Moses, Joshua's predecessor, had to do at the burning bush too in Exodus 3. What's there for Joshua as commander of God's army to do? It's really very, very simple. Simple but profound. What does Joshua have to do? Take off your sandals. Meaning, just worship. That's it. Worship. That means this. Joshua... In all your earthly fighting, with everything that's yet to come as you conquer the nations there in the promised land, just, Joshua, just keep a posture of worship. Remain faithful to God. Don't bow down to the gods of those nations, Exodus 23, verse 24. Joshua, just, just trust in the Lord. There's no need, Joshua, to go and make a covenant with those other gods, Exodus 23:32. Instead, Joshua, grow in your love and relationship with the one and only God of heaven and earth. Obey His good and perfect commandments. Keep doing, Joshua, what you were told to do already in chapter 1, verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law of my servant Moses that he gave to you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. What does Joshua have to do? Just worship. So congregation, there's a, there's a battle going on in our society. There's a battle going on in our world. And we know 
There's a battle going on in our personal lives too. And it involves, we know now, much more than we can see and what we hear and experience. And yes, because the command of the Lord's army was victorious, because the grave is empty, He does command the vast host of heaven for our protection. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 51. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? The answer says in part, by his power, he defends and preserves us against our enemy. We sang it with number 35 too. So there you have it. He is fighting for you. What's there for you to do? What's there for us to do? Just take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. In other words, worship him stay focused on him be faithful to his word obey his commandments keep standing in awe of him that's what Martin Luther did by the guidance of the spirit too just be faithful Just be faithful in the fight that God puts before you. That's our best strategy. That's our only strategy for the battle that's going on. And when by the Spirit's work we do that, then know this, congregation, the commander of the Lord's army, Jesus Christ, is fighting for you, for us. And we know Remember the grave, it's empty. He's already won. After all, the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, Father in heaven, we're so deeply grateful even though we are engaged in a battle on so many fronts. It's not our battle, it's yours. And in Christ, you have been and always will be victorious. Help us, Lord, to see the battle for what it is. Help us by your Spirit's work in us to be watchful and to always adopt a posture of worship seeking to live in obedience to you, seeking to live faithfully before your face. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer as a means by which during the ongoing battle, whether it's in our personal lives, in our world, in our society, we can always petition you for all that we need to continue the good fight of faith. Help us to do that to your honor and to your glory. Amen.